Now, on to Romans. Romans chapter 11. You can turn there. Romans 11. I will warn you, we've got a lot to cover this morning. Long chapter. Romans 11 is the last chapter in Paul's extended theology section in Romans. Uh, He's about to turn to application in the next chapter, but Paul's not going to let theology go out without a bang. So we've got a ton to cover this morning. Buckle up. Let's jump right in. Romans 11. Um, To set the stage for that, to help us understand what's going on in Romans 11, uh, I'll share with you a story. A guy named Booker T. Washington, probably heard of him, a guy who uh, escaped slavery and then lived an incredible life. He wrote a book after the Civil War called Up From Slavery, and he described meeting a former slave, an ex-slave in Virginia. I found that this man had made a contract with his master two or three years before the Emancipation Proclamation to the effect that the slave was to be permitted to buy himself by paying so much per year for his body. And while he was paying for himself, he was permitted to labor where and for whom he pleased. So finding that he could secure better wages in Ohio, he went there. Now, when freedom came, he was still in debt to his master some $300, which back then, that was a a ton of money. But... Notwithstanding the Emancipation Proclamation freed him from any obligation to his master, this black man walked the greater portion of the distance back from Ohio to Virginia and placed the last dollar with interest in the hands of his master. And in talking to me about this, the man told me that he knew that he did not have to pay his debt, but they had given his word to his master and his word he had never broken. He felt that he could not enjoy his freedom till he had fulfilled his promise. Now I hear a story like that and I think, man, that is outrageous. That's crazy. Think about the details of that story. This this slave, he makes a promise to the slave owner to buy his freedom, and then the Emancipation Proclamation happens. All of a sudden, slavery is illegal anywhere in the United States. Talk about an extenuating circumstance. Surely the Emancipation Proclamation should get this guy out of having to pay his debt. And remember who he owed the debt to, a, a slave owner. doesn't matter how nice the guy is. A slave owner is not really worthy of your loyalty. If, if anything, we should expect this slave to walk away from the debt. We can't hold him to this debt. And yet still, freely he chose to pay it. He didn't have to, but he chose to sacrifice and go to incredible effort to keep his word. And we hear that story and it just amazes us. It amazes us to see the lengths that someone would go to to keep his word. We admire a man who would allow no extenuating circumstance, no suffering, no pain, no sacrifice to keep him from fulfilling his promise. Well, that's how you're supposed to feel in Romans 11. That's what a Romans 11 is all about. It's about incredible faithfulness, amazing faithfulness. Romans 11 is about the links that God will go to to keep his promises to his people. That's what Romans 11 is about. How outrageously faithful our God is to keep his promise. Now, just to review for you, we got a promise at the end of Romans 8. Actually, a pretty outrageous promise. At the end of Romans 8, God promised to his people, I will allow nothing to separate us, not even you. God will allow nothing to come between him and his people. Nothing can pull us away from God. God will allow nothing to separate us. But that begs the question, Paul, what about Israel? What about Israel? 
God's original people, God's Old Testament people, most of them are separated from God, both in Paul's day and in our day. What about Israel? What has happened? Why are the vast majority of Jews separated from God? Is it because God is not faithful? Is it because God can't or or won't keep his promise to his people? Well, Paul answers no. And and if you remember in chapter 9 and in chapter 10, Paul answers this question in two parts. He gives a two-part answer, two related answers. In chapter 9, he says, why are the vast majority of Jews separated from God? Because God did not choose most Jews. And he teaches us about the theology of election. And then in chapter 10, he teaches the flip side of the coin. Why are most Jews separated from God? Because most Jews did not choose God. He teaches the theology of human responsibility. Paul just sets those two seemingly contradictory truths right next to each other without reconciliation, without explanation. He just says, this is what's going on. Why are the vast majority of Jews separated from God because of election and human responsibility? God did not choose most of them. Most of them did not choose God. Okay, so Paul lays out that theology and you read it and you study that theology, but when you go through chapters nine and 10, in the midst of all of that theology, the emotion that you should feel in chapters nine and 10 is depression, is despair. It's pretty sad chapters to read. Ever sat down and read through nine and 10? It's really sad. It's about how God's original people, the Jews, have fallen so far. How most of them now are separated from God. Not just because God did not elect most of them, but because they freely chose to reject their God. Look at how it ends. Look, the verse right before chapter 11, 10, 21. Paul concludes, but as for Israel, he says, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. For millennia, God has extended his hands of mercy and grace to the Jewish people and century after century after century, they have turned their back on him. They have said, no, thank you. They have rebelled against him. They rebelled generation after generation after generation. And so in an act of of unimaginable love, God sent his own son and they crucify him and then persecute his people. And that should leave us asking, so finally, is Israel beyond hope? After millennia of rejecting God, crucifying his son, persecuting his people, is Israel finally beyond hope? Have they fallen too far to be restored? That's the question of chapter 11. That's what chapter 11 is all about. Paul asks the question twice. Look at verse 1. Chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Has God finally rejected Israel? Did they blow it just too bad? And then he asked the same question in verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Have they finally stumbled so badly that they've fallen beyond hope of recovery? Is Israel beyond hope? Now that's an important question, obviously for Israel, very important question for the Jews, but it's important for you and I as well. This question is for us as well, because if God's original people Old Testament people, Israel, have fallen beyond hope of recovery, then what's to say that you and I can't fall beyond hope of recovery? If they have sinned so badly to fall beyond hope, then what if we sin so badly? Will we fall beyond hope? If God can't or won't restore his original people after they sin, then what hope do we have that he'll restore his new people, us, when we sin? This is a foundational question. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but your security in the Lord is bound up in Israel's security in the Lord. 
If Israel can't count on God, then neither can the church. Our security is founded in theirs. And so, has Israel fell beyond hope? Have they finally fallen beyond hope? Paul answers that question, short, distinct answer, same answer to both questions. He says, may it never be. And verse 1 and verse 11, may it never be. Now in English, that's kind of weak. In Greek, it's really strong. Absolutely not. Never, never would God allow Israel to fall beyond hope. They have not fallen beyond hope. They are not beyond hope today. They will never be beyond hope. And then Paul takes chapter 11, all the rest of it, to prove that answer, to prove that Israel has not fallen beyond hope. He gives us four reasons why Israel still has hope today, four reasons why there is hope for the Jewish nation even after millennia of disobedience and rebellion. And that's what we're going to jump into, Paul's four reasons for Israel's hope today. Reason number one, how can Israel, the people of the Jews, have hope today? Because reason number one, a believing remnant remains. Look with me, starting in verse 1, where we left off. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, Lord, they have killed your prophets and they have torn down your altars and I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Here's what Paul is saying. Has Israel fallen beyond hope? No, they have not. God has not completely rejected his people. How do you know that? Because of the remnant. Because at every age in the life of Israel as a nation, there have always been a remnant of believing, faithful Jews. God always has a remnant among the Jews who are believing, who are faithful. That was true in Elijah's day. And and Paul takes us back to 1 Kings 19, the story of Elijah. One of the first of the great prophets, if you're not familiar with that story, Elijah was, was brought up by God in a time of great apostasy in the nation of Israel. Most Israelites were worshiping Baal, a very immoral God, and the wife of the immoral king, a woman named Jezebel, decided that she was going to kill Elijah. He's one of the few faithful to God. And so um, he fears this lady. She's pretty powerful. So he runs. He just takes off in fear. He runs south um, to the deserts of southern Judea, and he hides, and he is hungry, and he is tired, and he is thirsty, and he is lonely, and he is depressed. And in a fit of despair, he calls out to God, God, kill me. Just put me to death right here because I'm the only one left. I'm the only Israelite still faithful to you. It's a really depressing place to be, so just kill me. And then God shows up. You know the story. God shows up and he feeds Elijah and gives him some water. So calm down, bro. It's going to be okay. And then God tells him, Elijah, you are not alone. Even though you don't realize it, I've got 7,000. 7,000 Israelites just like you who I have protected and preserved and saved. And they are faithful to me today. You are not alone, brother. There's a remnant. There's a remnant always in Israel. That was true in Elijah's day. It's true in Paul's day. That's where Paul goes. He points to himself. He says, look at me. I'm a Jew and I've been saved. There was a remnant right after the time of Jesus Christ. Paul wants us to understand. That's pretty amazing. The Jews as a people, 
had just chosen to crucify God's own son. Doesn't get worse than that. About as bad a thing as you can do. And yet right after doing that, God shows up on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter two, first day of the church, and what does God do? Saves 3,000 Jews. In an instant, saves 3,000 Jews. And then a short time later, he saves Paul. And that's pretty amazing because Paul was a really bad guy. Paul was the the chief persecutor of the early church. Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy 1. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I have found mercy so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul's point is if God can save me, he can save any Jew because I was the worst among them. God always has a remnant among the Jewish people. That's proof that God has not rejected the Jews. He has not finally cast off the Jews. He is still faithful to them. He had a remnant in Elijah's day and in Paul's day, and he does in our day. Right now, today, there are about 14 million Jews living in this world, and of those 14 million, it would appear there's about 150,000 who believe in Jesus, who are faithful, the remnant. It's grown a lot since Paul's day, 150,000. Now, there's a couple things about those numbers uh, that should surprise us. First of all, 150,000, that's a big group of people. Second, the 14 million number. It should kind of surprise us that there are any Jews to begin with. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Back in the 19th century, Queen Victoria of England asked her prime minister, a guy named Benjamin Disraeli, "Um, Mr. Prime Minister, what evidence can you give me for the existence of God? Then he thought about it for a moment. And then he said, the Jew, your majesty, the Jew. Think about all the people you meet in the Bible. You meet the Hittites and the Canaanites, the Edomites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, all kinds of other people. Um, Can you find any of them on the planet today? No. None of the people groups you meet in the Old Testament are alive today with one exception, the Jewish people. The Jewish people, somehow, this one distinct people group has been preserved for 4,000 years. No one else has. All those other people groups are just pieces of history now. They're all gone. And yet the Jews remain. And that's especially amazing when you realize that for thousands of years, they didn't have a homeland. They were scattered throughout the world. And everywhere they went, they were persecuted, either by the Inquisition or the Russian pogroms or the Nazi Holocaust. And yet still, the Jews remain. That's actually, I think, one of the greatest proofs for the existence of God And the faithfulness of his promises, the Jews remain, and among them there is still a remnant of believers. There will always be. And that is proof that the Jews have hope, that they are never beyond hope, that God is still at work among the Jewish people. A believing remnant remains. That's Paul's first line of proof. Second line of proof he gives us. Israel has reason for hope because they are still God's agents of blessing to the world. The Jews have always been the family through whom God blesses the rest of us. Look with me starting in verse 7. What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Paul is reviewing chapter 9 and 10 for us here. He's talking to us about God um, hardening the majority of the Israelites. He elected some to salvation and he hardened the rest in their sin and rebellion. 
But just remember, as we talked about in chapter nine, how does God's hardening work? How does this process of hardening between God and the unelect work? Well, it's a cooperative process. God rejects them and they reject God. God hardens them and they harden themselves. And Paul puts forth Pharaoh as the classic example. Who hardened Pharaoh? Pharaoh or God? Well, both, according to Exodus. Pharaoh hardened his own heart and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It was a back and forth, God turning Pharaoh over to the consequences of his rebellion to allow Pharaoh to slip further and further into the madness of sin. That's how hardness works. And that's what God has done to the Israelites. He has turned the bulk of the Israelites over to the hardness of their sin so that they slip further and further into the deception and destruction of sin. That's the bad news. God has allowed most of the Israelites to be hardened, but there's good news, Paul says. There's good news because the purpose of hardening Israel is to extend mercy to us. Look with me, starting in verse 11. I say then, They did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. By their sin, by their rejection of the gospel, salvation has come to you and I to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. What Paul is telling us is the Jews have always been God's chosen instrument of blessing the world, including you and I. God used the Jews to bring the gospel to us. Actually, that's historically true. God used the rejection of the Jewish people to do what? Well, to crucify his son. Really bad thing that worked out to a really good end. You're saved because Jesus died. The Jews made that possible for you. And then the Jews persecuted the church that grew up around the crucified, risen Messiah. As a result of persecuting the church, all of those first Christians left Israel and went to the rest of the world, the Roman Empire. Within a generation, there were churches throughout Rome, and that's how eventually you heard the gospel. Because the Jews said, no, we got it. We're blessed because of them. That's how God always planned it. If you go all the way back to the foundation of the nation of Israel, Genesis chapter 12, God shows up and makes some outrageous, irrevocable promises to a guy named Abraham who's called Abram at this point, Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. We call this promise the Abrahamic covenant. It's the foundation of the nation of Israel. It's actually the foundation of everything in the Bible from Genesis 12 to the end of Revelation. You are here because of the Abrahamic covenant. It promised Abraham land, everything from the Nile to the Euphrates, Mediterranean Sea to the Arabian Peninsula. It promised Abraham countless descendants. He would become a great nation, the nation of Israel. And it promised him blessing. His offspring would be blessed by God in every way. And then most importantly, they would become the channel of blessing to the rest of the world. That was always what the Jews were about. 
That's what's going on in the Old Testament. God is trying to bless one family, the family of Abraham, so that they can be a conduit of blessing to the rest of us. The Jews were always chosen to be God's instrument of blessing to the nations. And when they rebelled, God said, I don't care, you will still be. Even if you're an unwilling instrument, I will still use you to bless everyone. Whether you want to be a blessing or not, I'm going to use you, and God did. Used him to crucify his son so we could be saved. Used him to persecute the church so we could get the gospel. That's how it always works. God is using the Jews to bless the rest of us. That's proof that God is not done with the Jews. That God has a future and a hope for Israel. Israel is not beyond hope. In fact, this passage, what we just read, tells us that God is saving us. Why? So that it will make the Jews jealous. This is incredible. God is so smart. He's so crafty and skillful. He knows that his people, the Jews, have rejected him, and so he's going to use us, the Gentiles, to make them jealous, to make them want to return. It works like those of you who are parents and have toddlers. If your toddler will not eat his broccoli, what should you do? Well, if you tell him, Luke, eat your broccoli, he's not going to do it. He's not going to do it out of spite now. He's just not going to eat that broccoli. What do you do if you want Luke to eat his broccoli? You steal it. You take the broccoli right off his plate and pretend to put it in your mouth, and all of a sudden, what does my boy want more than anything else in the world? He wants his broccoli back because you stole it. It belongs to him. He wants it back, and if you give it back to him, chances are he's going to eat it, and that's what God's doing to Israel. Okay, so Israel, you don't want all of this grace I have for you in my son Jesus. All right, I'm taking it. I'm going to give it to these Gentiles who you don't like very much. And they're going to enjoy peace and and life, eternal life, forgiveness, joy, the fruit of the Spirit. They're going to enjoy all the stuff that was meant for you. And at some point, Israel, you're going to wake up and realize what you've given up and you're going to want it back. You are going to desperately want it back and that's what's going to happen. That's actually part of the reason for Paul's ministry, he tells us in this passage. He is preaching the gospel to the Gentiles in order to save the Jews so that the Jews will become jealous of what we enjoy. God is going to use us to bring the Jews back, and when he does, when the Jewish people return, what a great day it will be for all of us. So Paul goes right here. What a great day it will be for all of us. Verse 12, now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? What Paul is saying is if God can bless us with eternal life through the rejection of his people, imagine what he can bless you with when his people return. Growing up, my dad always used to love to say this phrase, um, our God can hit a home run with a crooked stick. That's true. Our God can hit a home run with a crooked stick. But imagine what God can do with a Louisville Sawyer. Imagine what he can do with a really good bat. He can crush that ball, and that's what God's going to do. If he can give you eternal life through the rejection of Israel, imagine what he can do when they return. God will usher all of us into the greatest period of blessing and peace and prosperity the world has ever known. We'll talk about it later this morning. It's called the millennial kingdom. God's kingdom on earth. God will usher us into that when Israel returns. And so is Israel beyond hope? Absolutely not. Israel has great hope because they have always been and will always be God's channel of blessing to all of us. We're here because of the Jews. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Reason Grace Bible Church exists, reason you're in this pew this morning is because of the Jews. We owe it to them. God will bring them back, and when he does, we will all enjoy the greatest period of blessing the world has ever known. 
So Israel is not beyond hope because they're still God's agents of blessing to the world. Third reason they're not beyond hope, because God can restore them at any moment. God can restore them even right now. Look with me starting in verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, quite right. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? What in the world is going on? It's a very long metaphor. Well, Paul is looking at one of these. It's an olive tree. This one's in Israel near the city of Nazareth. And he's looking at an olive tree that has been grafted. Basically what happened is you got a really old really rich, really established olive tree. The natural branches, though, have been removed for one reason or another, and new branches have been grafted in. These young branches are now receiving all of the rich nutrients that come up through the roots. Okay, what is the metaphor about? Well, first, you've got to identify the roots. What's the stump down there that's providing all of these rich blessings? Well, that's the covenant, God's covenant blessings given to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. That's what is the root in this metaphor. It is providing blessing to every branch that is connected to it. Now, what are the branches? That's actually a a subject that is hotly debated among theologians. Are the branches individuals? Are they individuals? Are, Are you a branch? Well, if so, then there's some verses here that are problematic, Uh, verses like 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. The branches are you. If it's individuals, then what Paul is saying is if you do not remain faithful to God, God's going to lop you off and throw you in the breast pile. That's bad news. That's really bad news because it seems to contradict everything that chapter 8 taught us. Chapter 8 said no matter what you do, God will never allow you to be separated from him. So it seems like chapter 11 and chapter 8 are in contradiction if it's an individual. They're not, though, if you realize it's people groups. Paul is talking about people groups, groups of people united by ethnicity or language or nation or state. That's what he has in mind. Each branch is a people group. That's what Paul was just talking about. In the preceding verses, he had two people groups in mind. Who were they? The Jews and the Gentiles. Here, he has that same type of thing in mind. We know that because everywhere you see the word you in the verses we just read, you don't catch this in English, but you do in Greek, it's always singular, it's not plural. He's not talking to all of you as individual branches. He's talking to you, one branch, the Roman Christians, one single branch, one people group. Okay, so what is Paul saying? Well, he's saying that this rich root of covenant blessings gives all of these benefits of God to whatever branches, whatever people groups are joined to it. And the original people group was the Israelites. They were given the Abrahamic covenant. It belonged to them. All of the blessings promised to Abraham went to them. They got it by nature, but then they proved unfaithful. 
They rejected God. They rebelled against God. They chose not to be God's instrument of blessing to the world. And so what did God do? He removed Israel from the root. Now, that doesn't mean that God's not still saving individual Jews. God is always at work among individuals of any people group, saving individuals from every people group. And yet, because they rejected God, Israel as a nation was removed from the root of the Abrahamic covenant. They were set aside as a nation. And so today, the nation of Israel has no special claim to God's covenant blessings because the nation as a whole is still in rebellion against God. So they are not a blessed nation. They have been cut out and removed. In their place, God has grafted in new people groups, new Gentile people groups. That's true throughout the history of the church in the last 2,000 years. God is continually grafting new nations, new ethnic groups into the rich root of the Abrahamic covenant. That began with the Samaritans, Greeks, and Romans in the book of Acts. The Jews are set aside and the Samaritans, the Greeks, and the Romans are grafted in. And they begin to experience incredible blessing from God. Not financial blessing, not military blessing, but spiritual blessing. God begins revivals among these people groups. There's a church in every Greek city. The Greeks and the Romans are sending missionaries throughout the whole world. They are God's agents of blessing to the world. God did it again more recently, 18th and 19th centuries. He grafted in the American people group and the English people group. Read back the last few hundred years, there's been some incredible revivals in England and in America led uh, by guys like John Wesley and George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, Dwight Moody, Billy Graham. They have led tens of thousands, if not millions of people to faith, and then these people groups have become senders of missionaries. England kicked off the modern mission movement, sending uncounted missionaries throughout the far corners of the world, and America today is actually the biggest sender of missionaries to the world. God is using us to send more missionaries to the far corners of the world than any other nation. That's what God can do. That's what the metaphor is about. At any time, he can take a people group who responds rightly to the gospel, who says yes to his gift of grace in Christ, and join that people group into the rich root of covenant blessings, and his spirit begins to move. He saves many. He raises up a spirit of obedience in the nation, and the nation begins to send forth missionaries. But... God reserves the right at any time. If that people group chooses to reject him, to turn from him, to turn their back on him, to cut them off, to remove them as a people group from his rich root of blessing. Case in point, England. England in this century, if you go over there today, it's not like it was in Charles Spurgeon's day. It's now very dry. Spiritually, it's a hard, cold place. Now, God is still working. There are still many English men and women and children coming to faith. There are still strong churches in England, but as a society, as a people group, they're dead. They're dry. Because they chose not to be God's instrument of blessing, he removed them from the root. We may be following. As the United States, as a society, turns our back more and more on God and grows more selfish and more consumed with materialism, God reserves the right to remove us as well, to set us aside and graft in new branches. Some of the new branches I would submit to you, particularly the Koreans and the Chinese. South Korea has experienced an unbelievable revival in the last 50 years. I don't know if you've tracked it in the news. Last 50 years, South Korea has become 
a Christian nation. 40% of the population claims to be evangelical Christian. 11 of the world's 12 largest congregations of believers are in South Korea. Here's Easter service in South Korea. And so look at all those people. I have no idea how many, but it's huge. They're right there in the center of town gathering together to worship Christ because they've been grafted in. God is doing an incredible thing. Back in 1983, South Korea sent like 93 missionaries. It's a whole nation. That's that's all they sent into the world. In 2009, they sent 20,000 in one year. They're now second only to the United States. God is grafting them in and doing incredible things, revival through this nation because they are responding to the gospel. It would appear that China is following. There's incredible revival going on in China. Tens of thousands, millions of people are turning to the gospel. China's beginning to send its own missionaries to countries we can't even go to. It's amazing what God is doing. And so that's what the metaphor is about. People groups can be grafted in when they respond rightly and then God's spirit moves and they become an instrument of God's blessing to the world. But when they turn their back on God, he removes them. Still at work among individuals, but setting aside the people group. And Paul's point in this metaphor is really to look at the Israelites. If the Israelites return to God, he can graft them back in. He can add them back in. In fact, it will be easier to add in the Israelites because they're the natural branches. The covenant belonged to them to begin with. They've got the Old Testament. They've got the law. They live on God's land. It will be easy to graft them back in. If God can graft Americans and Koreans into the rich root of the Abrahamic covenant, he can easily do it to the Israelites. The moment they return, the moment they say yes to God, they'll be grafted back in. So they are not beyond hope. At any moment, God can turn the nation of Israel back to himself. And they can again experience all the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. So, God can restore them at any time. And then the fourth reason why Israel is not beyond hope, because God promises to restore them in the future. God promises that he will certainly restore the nation of Israel in the future. Look with me, starting in verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Paul reveals a mystery here. You see that word in the New Testament, mystery. It means that Paul's about to tell you something that you could not have known previously. The rest of the Bible does not talk about it. And God had not revealed it in any way until he reveals it. At this moment through Paul, God supernaturally reveals what's going on behind the scenes. And what God tells us is, Paul, uh, right now I'm at work in the Gentiles. I'm drawing some Jews to myself, but mostly Gentiles. That's going to continue for a while. God right now is at work mostly among the Gentiles. But at some point in the future, he'll be finished with us. He'll have drawn to himself all of the elect Gentiles. And at that moment, when all the Gentiles who are elect have been saved, God will turn his attention back to Israel. And what will God do? Save all Israel. 
All of Israel will be saved. At that moment in time, when God turns his attention back to the nation of Israel, all Israelites living on earth, the entire nation of Israel will return to God. They will all be saved. That's an Old Testament promise. Paul points to Jeremiah and Isaiah. He quotes from them here to say that's what God always promised. He's not done with the Jews. He will fulfill his promises to Abraham. He will draw all of the Jews back to himself. Why? Because of verse 29. And if you have a pencil or a pen, you really ought to underline verse 29. One of the greatest verses you'll find anywhere in the Bible. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Israel doesn't deserve God's promises. He doesn't deserve to have God fulfill his word to them. They have been anything but worthy. They have rebelled against God for thousands of years. They crucified his own son and then persecuted his own people. God still will fulfill his promises to them. Why? Because he must. God has to keep his word. It's part of his nature. God is unable to go back on his word. His promises are irrevocable. His calling is irrevocable. He must fulfill his word to save Israel. And let me just really quickly show you when that happens. If you were here last year as we went through Isaiah, you saw this. This is an eschatology chart. It shows us what's happening in the future. What is God going to do on the planet Earth in the coming days? Well, right now we're in the church age. Don't know how long it's going to last. During this time, God is building a church of Jew and Gentile. At some point, Jesus will call us home. That's the rapture. We'll go to meet Jesus. The church will leave Earth, and that will kick off the Great Tribulation, seven years of unprecedented suffering on Earth, led by a guy the Bible calls the Antichrist. And at first, the Antichrist is going to be pretty friendly to Israel. Things are good for them in the first half of the tribulation, but then he goes back on his word and he begins to persecute them more severely than they've ever been persecuted. He launches a new holocaust against the Jewish people. There's no place on earth found for them. They are desperate. And in their desperation, finally, they turn back to God for help. Finally, they say, God, save me. And in the moment of turning back to God, they see that Jesus is actually God. They see that the guy that they crucified is actually their Lord and Messiah and they weep over him. They finally believe and in that moment they are saved right at the end of the tribulation. All remaining Israelites on earth are saved. The whole nation bows the knee to Christ and as soon as they do, Jesus returns. And he returns in a big way, very glorious, very powerful. He wipes out all their enemies with a breath of his mouth. They're all dead. And then he brings all believing Israelites and all believing Gentiles in the millennial kingdom. And we'll be there with him. In the millennial kingdom, God's literal kingdom on earth, Jesus ruling in Jerusalem, ushering the world into a period of unparalleled blessing, an end to war, poverty, disease, famine. All of that comes to an end. We will experience nothing but God's blessings. God's kingdom on earth. That's what's coming for Israel. Now, as Paul Harvey used to say, you know the rest of the story. God's not done with Israel. God has a big plan for Israel. He's going to use us to make them jealous so that they return to Christ. And when they do, he will usher in God's kingdom on earth. Israel's not beyond hope. Israel has great hope. God will keep his word to Israel. That's, that's the point that Paul has for us in this passage. But now uh, we need to step back and think about the, the so what. Why does this matter? But we've spent a ton of time this morning looking at history and theology. What's the point of all of this stuff? 
whole lot of theology here. I don't, I don't know if you feel this way. After studying Romans 9 through 11 and then teaching them to you, I feel absolutely exhausted. I feel like Romans 9 and 11 has been like this theology beat down to me. It feels that way. It's all, all this complex theology and history about Israel and all this stuff that's difficult. The problem is, is that we get caught up in all of that theology and history and we forget that Romans 9 through 11 is really all about worship. That's what it is. Romans 9 through 11. What is it about? Worship. It's that simple. Look at the end of the chapter. Read with me the end of the chapter, starting in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It's all about worship. At the end of the day, that's what Paul wants here. Not a theology lesson, not a history lesson. He wants worship. He wants us to turn and see the God that we have. The God who would be so faithful to Israel. Paul wants us to turn to God and worship. He wants us to worship God for his unlimited mercy. Think about it. These are people who had rejected God for 4,000 years, who had disobeyed, who had turned their back on a God who gave them nothing but mercy, day in and day out, extending his mercy to them. They rejected it generation after generation, then killed his son and persecuted his people, and yet still, God loves them. Still, he saves them. Still, he's at work in them. Still, he will keep his word to them. God's mercy is without limit. That's true for Israel. It's also true for you. If you're here this morning and you feel like you have blown it so big, you have done something so bad, so shameful, that God could never love you, he could never forgive you, he could never make you part of his people, you need to look at Israel and understand no one is beyond hope. As long as you have breath in your lungs, you are not beyond hope. Still God loves you. Still he extends mercy to you. He wants you to know without doubt this morning that Jesus died for your sins. All of them, even that really bad one you don't tell anyone about, he died for it. He paid for it. He set it aside and then he rose from the dead conquering sin forever so that you could be free so that you could have eternal life and live with God forever. You are not beyond hope. No person is because Israel is not. They are proof that no one is beyond hope because God's mercy is unlimited. Second, God wants us to worship him because of his unfathomable wisdom. Unbelievable wisdom that God has expressed in history. It's easy for us to pass over it or get lost in the history of it. Paul wants us to come and see what a good and wise God we have. He takes what appears to be the moment of his defeat his own people kill his son and turn their back on him, God uses that to bring about victory. He uses their rejection to make salvation possible for all of us so that they'll become jealous and return also. God's plan is incredible. He is so skilled, so crafty, so wise. His wisdom is unfathomable. I think we'll be thinking about the wisdom of God for all of eternity and never come to terms with it will never fully come to grasp the ways of God because they are unfathomable. Third, we're meant to worship God for his absolute faithfulness. Even more than that slave who went to such great efforts to keep his word, God has spared no expense. He has brokered no exception. He has put forth incredible suffering and incredible effort 
to keep his word to us. God is absolutely faithful. He will keep his promises because the calling and promises of God are irrevocable. He can never go back on them. He never will. God is absolutely faithful. Israel proves it so we can believe it. This passage is meant to lead us into worship. And so I want to end by reading those verses again, verses 33 through 36. If your Bible's in front of you, you can read them with me. You can read them out loud or you can read them silently to yourself. I want us to read verses 33 to 36. And as we read it, I want you to read every word and think about it. I want you to read every word and mean it. I want you to say these verses to God. Offer this to God. Tell God that you believe these truths about him. Make this a moment of worship where you declare the worth of your God. So let's worship God by reading, starting in verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. God, to you be the glory forever. You alone are worthy of our praise. You are a God indescribable. You are a God infinite. You are a God without limit. We praise you, God, that you are a God of such incredible faithfulness. You will never go back on your word. You will do whatever it takes to keep your promises. We praise you for that. We praise you that you are a God of unlimited mercy. Every time we fail, you continue to extend grace and forgiveness to us. Thank you for that, Lord. We lift up anyone here this morning who has not yet received that unlimited mercy from you. Please help them to believe that Jesus really did die for their sins and rise from the dead. Please help them to receive your free grace. And finally, Lord, we thank you for the unfathomably wise God that you are. You are wise beyond our understanding. You know and see all things. We praise you, God, that like a master artist, you are weaving together everything. All of these strands of history, all that's going on, all of these different peoples and persons, you are weaving it all together in accordance with your glorious plan to bless us, Lord. Thank you so much for your wisdom. Thank you that you are a God beyond description. You are a God worthy of all praise and glory. Thank you that we will, for all of eternity, worship you. You are worthy. I pray that as we go from here this morning, Lord, that we would be overwhelmed with your love, that we would be amazed that a God like you would choose to love us. I pray that we would live in that love this week, Lord, that for every person in this room, that they would sense how awesome it is that a God like you would love them, that they would feel warmth and security, joy and peace because you have chosen them in love. And Lord, that each and every one of us would share that love with someone else. Please, Lord, help us to share the gift of your love with everyone around us. All for your glory, all for the fame of the name of your glorious son, Jesus. To him we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.